Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Join us as we speak with Dr. Aaron Spitz, a renowned urologist, author, and one of the featured stars of the remarkable documentary, The Game Changers. Dr. Spitz is a national leader in health policy for urologists across the nation and has done some of the most groundbreaking work in the field of urology. He earned his medical degree from Cornell Medical College, completed his urology residency at the University of Southern California, and then obtained fellowship training in infertility at the Baylor College of Medicine. He is the author of The Penis Book, a doctor's complete guide to the penis from size to function and everything in between. He has authored multiple book chapters and articles in peer-reviewed publications and is actively engaged in clinical trials and research in the area of andrology, male sexual dysfunction, and male infertility. Dr. Spitz has done some of the most groundbreaking work in the field of erectile dysfunction by demonstrating the influence of lifestyle on erectile dysfunction, as well as how it may be an early marker for cardiovascular disease. He's also a frequent guest and part-time co-host on the popular CBS talk show, The Doctors. If you are a man or have a man in your life, it is imperative to listen to this conversation as it may save their life. Dr. Aaron Spitz, it's wonderful to have you on our podcast. Dean and I are big fans of your work. And uh, I know that you're a clinician and it's pretty late in the day and you agreed to come on and speak with us about such an important topic. We're so grateful. Thank you for being with us. Well, it's uh, my pleasure. And you guys have done tremendous work and I have uh, utmost respect for you. So it's an honor for me to be here talking to you. Thank you. We met you two years ago in, um, uh, what was it? Um, The Plant plant Stock. stock, And it was wonderful meeting you. And we were holding each other's books and your book. and, And I was... I posted the picture and said, I'm holding his book and, and you're holding mine. And Garth <laughs> made, wrote something that, what are you holding? What are you? <laughs> so well, yeah, we, I mean, we let's, re- let's just be blind. You were holding my penis book. <laughs> yes, <laughs> penis right. book. And I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, it's it's. And yeah. you said something to the effect that, you know, between the two of us, we've covered the most important organs in the body. <laughs> it is. It is. Evolutionarily, that's it. Two heads are better than one. <laughs> I think we've covered all the yeah. No, the, we think that when we first saw you, immediately uh, something came to mind uh, about the importance of understanding the relationship between different parts of the body. And um, uh, so often we are trained and you've gone through the same thing, fellowships and so on and so forth. And we become so myopic that almost we, we can't think outside of our organ. And but but reality is. They're all interconnected, but in much more subtle ways. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you quickly and in a broader way is because we definitely think that what happens with erectile dysfunction, which you're a world expert, uh, you're actually fairly close to us. We're in Southern California, both of us, is very indicative of what's going on in your brain. The only thing is you see the effect in erectile dysfunction earlier, but the effect is happening. The same thing is happening in the brain. And whereas people don't want to focus on what's happening on their brain or they ignore it or it's not manifest until, you know, the the clinical is not manifest until very late. What happens with erectile dysfunction can tell so much. And um, that's where we wanted to talk to you and your work. Well, thank you. And it's so true how we get so focused and uh, tunnel vision really on our particular area of expertise you know, a classic quote from my residency was, why is the heart important? It's because it pumps blood to the penis, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, very, very focused <laughs> on on our organ, right, in urology. Yeah. But it is true that, you know, the body is a system of organs that creates a whole. And, and yes, of course, these organs are all interconnected and share common denominators. And one of those common denominators that all organs share is the circulatory system, the blood vessels Mm -hmm. that uh, bring nutrients to it and take waste away from it. And the penis is essentially, you know, primarily a bunch of blood vessels. I mean, that's what it is as an organ. It's, 
blood vessels that are contained within a specialized sheath that allow those blood vessels to fill with blood. And as they do, they cause that sheath to expand to a point. And then when it can't expand anymore, it gets firm and that's an erection. And then those blood vessels constrict and uh, the penis gets smaller and softer. And so it's all about the blood vessels. And therefore, mm -hmm. the penis is this really interesting window that guys have into the health of their blood vessels and the health, therefore, of all their organs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Uh, we were, um, you know, reading up on a couple of recent research, and there's actually scientific evidence that if someone has erectile dysfunction, that could be a red herald for cardiovascular disease. And there was a statement where they said that if a man with erectile dysfunction comes in and he has no cardiac symptoms, it's actually a cardiac patient until proven otherwise. That's right, because, as I said, the predominant function of the penis in its sexual function is to increase blood flow into itself. And that requires healthy blood vessels that are very elastic and very dynamic and can stretch and open up and allow blood in. And as our blood vessels become diseased, the stretchy, elastic nature of the muscular lining of them becomes fibrotic and can no longer stretch. Yeah. And so if the penis is not able to engorge with blood and become erect, it may be because those blood vessel-like spaces within the penis are becoming fibrotic. And if it's becoming fibrotic there, it could be also becoming fibrotic in the coronary arteries, in the carotid arteries, and could be a harbinger of an impending heart attack or stroke. And the thing is that the blood vessels that lead into the penis, the arteries that bring the blood into the penis chambers are only a millimeter in diameter. That's when they're normal and healthy. And we know that as we age, our arteries narrow. And therefore, there's very little cushion for the penile arteries. And so as the effects of aging begin, the effects of diet, the effects of other disease states that might undermine the health and the diameter of our arteries starts to take its effect on our body, the penis is going to be one of the first things to go. And so mm -hmm. a man may notice erectile dysfunction years before he has angina or years before he has a transient ischemic attack because the coronary arteries are five, six millimeters in diameter, five or six times larger in diameter than the penile arteries. They have more cushion. They have more yet to lose before you're going to start to see those symptoms. But the penis is like the canary in the coal mine. Exactly. I mean, as far as the canary in the coal mine, we've used that analogy. And when, when it comes to brain, it's actually very, very much correlated with the penile uh, vasculature. So we have about 400 miles of vasculature in the brain. Um, it's the most vascular organ there is. I mean, uh, they've done experiments or when we were at UCSD where they've denuded the brain of all the tissue except for vasculature. And, uh, and you say, where is the, where there's no room for anything else. It's a vascular organ primarily. Beyond that, and it's microvasculature. And then beyond that, when you look at the MRI studies now, recent MRI studies, um, seven Tesla or high resolution MRI studies, postmortem and even animal studies, and a lot of these diseases, the vascular disease actually predated any amyloid deposition or anything else in the brain by more than a decade. So it's actually first a vascular disease before it's anything else downstream. So because of the microvasculature, and I fully, that's why I want people to realize that if they're having some difficulty and it turns out to be a vascular problem in the penis, assume you're having the same kind of problems in the brain, but the end organ function of the brain does not manifest the same way in the penis. It manifests in behaviors that are very you know, amorphous and not clear and, and people can't attribute it until the whole behavior is gone. You know, if you're forgetting how to where the key is, or you don't attribute it to, to, to a vascular problem. So this is why it's so critical to kind of connect those two concepts. For that reason and the other reason that men in particular, they're very hard to change as far as behavior is concerned, unless it's affecting their penis. Yes. So, so <laughs> assume that you're having difficulty. So I, we love the connection between the penis and the brain. So I wanted to ask you, I'm gonna actually pull back a little. What interested you? We, we did a study with uh, Joel, head of uh, sleep studies at Harvard, um, 
uh, last week. And I always want to ask the same questions from everybody. What interested you in urology to take you in that direction? Because there's always a story. Well, I lost a bet. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's as good as any story. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's not something that I grew up dreaming to be as a child, you might imagine. And I didn't actually even know what the study of urology was until I was in my clinical rotations in medical school. I went to Cornell Medical School, which happens to have one of the premier urology departments in the world. And my initial intention was to become a OBGYN and possibly get into in vitro fertility, which was a, a newly emerging field at that time. And Cornell had one of the greatest centers in the world as well. But when I rotated on urology, which was sort of, you know, the, the male version of OBGYN, if you will, I was just so captivated by the faculty. The faculty were so not only brilliant, but so engaging and so influential. And I just identified with them as mentors immediately. And, you know, people will talk about, well, I like this aspect of medicine, but that aspect of medicine doesn't really interest me. I really challenge people to prove that there is any aspect of medicine that isn't interesting. And so it yeah. really that didn't matter so if it was urology or if it was radiation oncology, I could find something interesting in any field of medicine, but what really drew me to the field, honestly, was the people and the mentors I encountered and I identified with them. And, and, I, and that could have happened in cardiothoracic surgery, that could have happened in hepatology, but it happened in urology and yeah, the, the, the subject matter itself is, is very fascinating to be sure. And yeah. I know I have to admit, I, I enjoy having a sense of humor and being able to laugh at myself. And urology does lend itself to that, but make no mistake, <laughs> we do some very serious work. And you know, oh there's some gosh. very, yeah. very serious life-threatening conditions that we are able to manage, but also we do have a reputation for being able to have a little levity, being a little less stern, say, than the neurosurgeons or uh, a little less yes. intense than the than the, uh, <laughs> the cardiothoracic surgeons. And so uh, it was just, it was a good fit for me, honestly. That's how I arrived at it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a beautiful field. You're absolutely right. Any field, you know, we have two kids and we always talk about in parties when people say, I'm bored. I said, there are no boring places, only boring people. I mean, if you have an inquisitive mind, you will find interest in anything and everything, and even in the silence of a blank room in your own mind. But, but urology is, uh, is an incredibly beautiful field where you give power to people that are losing what they consider an important part of their life and, and control over that. That's wonderful. And then you've approached it a little differently as well beyond that. You've looked at influence of lifestyle. Absolutely. Yes. And that's what's fascinating because there are not a lot of urologists who look at the bigger picture of how lifestyle affects the vasculature, you know, and how it relates to erectile function. And I've heard you speak about when you were at Plantstock, you were talking about vascular endothelial health and nitrous oxide and how does lifestyle affect it. Um, and I, I, we wanted to we wanted to kind of dive into that because, you know, as Dean and I, we're researchers in lifestyle and particularly when it comes to nutrition's effect on vascular health. We know that when, you know, a certain diet that is low in saturated fats and low in processed foods, it actually is protective of all that endothelial lining of vasculature, whether it's the carotid arteries or the smaller blood vessels in the brain. And you say the same thing, don't you? Yes, absolutely. And I'm really fortunate that I took an interest in this, but it wasn't because I was very smart is because I had a patient drag me to it. And um, it was just kind of a funny coincidence, but I had a patient who was very excited about a book called The China Study, which was a study mm -hmm. of how populations uh, did health-wise, depending on the diets they were eating. And it showed that populations that ate a predominantly plant-based diet did the best when it came to chronic disease states. And he was very excited about this and he, and he wanted me to read this book he had just read called The China Study. And I said, okay, fine. So I, I ordered the book and it arrived and I never read it. And then it, about a year later, a neighbor of mine said, oh man, you gotta read this book called The China Study, it's incredible. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> huh, that's kind of funny. You know, uh, <laughs> I had this patient and I have this book, but, but I still didn't read it. And then that same patient came back for his yearly checkup 
and his PSA, which is a marker of prostate health, had dropped by about 50%. And you see that sometimes with the use of Propecia, also known as finasteride, a drug that, that shrinks prostate tissue and promotes uh, or decreases hair loss by a hormonal effect on how testosterone interacts with the tissues. And I thought perhaps maybe he started this drug and he hadn't. And I said, well, it's really interesting. Your PSA dropped quite a bit, but you know, there's no particular reason. He goes, no, doc, I, I'm eating plant-based diet. You know, the China study, did you read it? And I said, I did order it, <laughs> but I never read it. So he said, I got it in my car on CD. I'm gonna bring it up to you. And literally after I pulled my finger out and he zipped up, he went down to his car, grabbed his case of, of <laughs> audio book on, you know, on CD, brought it up to me. And it just so happened that weekend, I had a four hour drive to Joshua Tree Park for a Boy Scout camp out. And the book was eight hours long. And me and my entire family listened to this book on CD, four hours there and four hours back. And the reason I bothered was because the author, Colin Campbell, is a professor from Cornell, and that's my alma mater. So I was like, well, this guy must have some, right. some cred. And what really caught my attention, I mean, the whole book is really a fantastic book, but there was, there was like a paragraph on prostate in there. And they were observing yeah. that when they were doing autopsies on these uh, Asians in a predominantly plant-based diet, there was very little prostate cancer encountered, uh, very little prostate inflammation for that matter. And that really caught my attention. So with that in mind, I went online and I started to dig and lo and behold, there was literature that didn't exist when I was in medical school. And there was a study out of uh, UC San Francisco with Dean Ornish about how men with prostate cancer, biopsy proven prostate cancer put on a plant-based diet had a decreased percentage of these guys progressed and needed to have surgery compared to people that just ate a regular diet. And that kind of blew my mind because I had done a rotation at UCSF and I knew who the authors on this paper were personally. So all of a sudden there was this legitimacy, there was a buy-in. I mean, you can, you can be told a hundred mm -hmm. different things and they can all be true, but you might say, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe, 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 maybe. When you're like, wait, I know that guy. He put his name on this study. He did this study. All of a sudden it became real to me. Well, it just so happened that mm -hmm. I had a patient, a colleague, an anesthesiologist in his forties, who had a strong family history of prostate cancer and every year his PSA would go up and up and up. And we had biopsied him like five or six times now. It was, it was terrible. Uh, we sent him to UCSF where they had this incredible protocol because you don't want to miss prostate cancer in a guy that's that young and that viable and that important to the community. But on the other hand, you don't want to torture him. I didn't know what to do. I was at my wits end. Yeah. And I, I got back from Joshua Tree. The first thing I did was I called him up and I said, hey, listen, I just read this book. I want to try something with you. You and me are going to go vegan. And we're going to recheck your PSA in six months. We're going to do this together. My, my PSA was fine, but we're going to do this. We're going to go vegan. We're going to recheck your PSA in six months and let's see what happens. And I was very lucky because you know, not all things work on all people all the time. And this could have That's easily true. not worked just by sampling, mm -hmm. but his PSA dropped by 50% on the next read. And it oh, never, it never went to abnormal from that point to today. He's in his sixties now. Wow. And he was thrilled and he became the greatest advocate for plant-based diet. He got the hospitals to bring in plant-based uh, lunches for the doctors in the doctor's dining room. The ICU started to adopt plant-based diets. I mean, all kinds of downstream effects happened because I happened to pick the right guy and it happened to work on him. Now, <laughs> I'll tell you, a plant-based diet does not reduce everybody's PSA but it reduces mm -hmm. many. It does not slow down cancer in everybody, but it does in many. And I've seen some really awesome cases, but I tell my patients, if you do this, I promise you it won't hurt you, but it might mm -hmm. help you. I can't guarantee you it will help you with your prostate. I guarantee you it won't hurt you and it'll probably help you with other organs and it'll probably help you Absolutely. with other aspects of your health. And I'll tell you, it's really funny. My most grateful patients in my practice are grateful to me because I told them about eating plant-based, not because of the urological condition I fixed. That really becomes secondary to, to the very most enthusiastic patients I have because I fixed more than the urological condition. I fixed their whole yeah. body. But again, I never claim that this will do all things for all people all the time, but I do claim that it won't hurt you. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. so interesting you said that because I have a number of patients. I see stroke patients, post-stroke and TIA patients, and I, I do primary and secondary stroke prevention in them. And so obviously we recommend a whole food plant-based diet in our clinic as well. 
And a handful of them have had high PSAs and they've been under yeah. monitor by a urologist. And an amazing side effect of, you know, helping your brain with this whole food plant-based diet is their PSA just plummets and they don't know what it is. They think it's probably because of, you know, something else that they're doing, but it's a diet and it's fascinating. It's, it makes them so happy to see yeah. the numbers going down. Yeah. It's so funny because when I, my patients come back, they're like, oh, yeah, my blood pressure is better. My cholesterol is better. My weight's down. I feel great. And it's so funny because you guys and me were like, you know, you guys are like the North Pole and I'm like the South Pole. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we get these these signals from what's happening on the other end, you know, uh, when our patients come back, even though we're both giving them the same intervention. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Uh, it's it's exciting to see more and more people adopting this and and that helps the intervention side because when people hear you know this kind of lifestyle change the more they hear it the more likely that they become adherent to it and stick to it. So that's the beauty of it and you were in the Game Changers uh, movie which actually has done an amazing job of changing the most recalcitrant of populations, Indeed. young men. Yes. Yeah, and your little, well, it wasn't a little, uh, your bit in it was Massive. probably the, uh, well, one of the most important inches. parts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, because men care about that more than their muscles. And That's when, true. Uh, the part and it's where not you even a muscle. Show, yeah, they think it's a muscle. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, that's what they think. They're, they're, they're flattering themselves. No, but this is true. The, the Game Changers movie, which I was just very fortunate to be allowed to participate in, but certainly I didn't conceive the movie, but it was, it was so well done that it did have an immediate profound effect on young people, including my own son. So my son was, uh, you know, a high school elite athlete. He was the captain of his rowing boat and he, he was a valedictorian and just, you know, just top notch superstar kid. And I would talk to him all the time about plant-based eating. And he would not really be very interested in what I had to say. <laughs> uh, he knew I was a doctor, but you know, so what his coach said this, or, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the other guy said that, and, you know, we're going to eat these things and that things and, and whatever dad. And I never imposed plant-based eating in my house. I just tried to set an example. So he got to go with me and my wife, my other son to the Sundance Film Festival's world premiere. And mm -hmm. he watched the movie in the world premiere. And as soon as the movie ended, he reached over to me and he said, Dad, I'm vegan right now. And he has been vegan. He's been vegan ever since that day. That's two oh. years ago. And he's 22. That's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It okay. really is. And, and Imagine, I mean, your part in this, and I'm not trying to give you fulsome flattery. It's it's absolutely ac accurate and no, important. No, even flattery, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It is. You know, we do all this work. I mean, between the two of us, the, our cousins say we have more degrees than a thermostat and <laughs> schooling and this and that. It's none of that. The thing that matters is whatever it takes to convert people or help people, or more important than convert, help empower people to make the right choices. And part of that empowerment is transferring or translating information in a way that's palatable, pardon the pun, and in a way that people can actually see in themselves. And your part was incredibly valuable in that movie. I would say, I mean, uh, there's probably data to this, that that component had probably the most effect on converting people to a healthier diet than, than, uh, as much as anything else in that uh, film. So we thank you for that because... Oh, wow. um, you, you know, know, I we, when I, we I was brought into that movie and and that scene kicking and screaming. That was not yeah. my that was not my original idea. The producer contacted me and said, you know, we just did this scene with the Miami Dolphins where we showed a single meal effect on the appearance of blood. You know, the lipe the lipemia and the blood following an animal based versus a plant based meal, and it's very dramatic and it's very impactful. Is there something that we can do that demonstrates a single meal effect on erectile function? that's very impactful like that. We'd like to do that because they had already filmed me. We'd already done a two hour interview two years before at the very beginning of the filming of this movie. And it was in the can. Mm -hmm. They circled back around, they, they, they proposed this to me and I said, no, there's, there's nothing we can do. I mean, erectile dysfunction is a gradual deterioration of the blood vessels. It's typically seen in older men. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that you could detect or demonstrate a single meal effect. There's no instrument sensitive enough to do that. And the tools that we have, you know, have uh, various, uh, you know, limitations to them. And I can't possibly imagine that we can do that. Sorry, it's a nice idea, but no. 
And James Wilkes, you know, who the movie centers around, came back to me and goes, well, what about this uh, nocturnal penile tumescence, this ridge scan, nighttime measuring of the erections? I said, no way. The, the effect would be so subtle. You know, you'd need something like mm -hmm. so, some sort of vascular ultrasonography or, or, or some sort of chemical assays in real time to pick something that subtle up. And I said, no. <laughs> she said, no. And he begged and I said, yeah. no. And then, you know, I kind of said, all right, fine. You know, we'll, we'll try it. And so we did a test run on a few subjects and the results were, they were problematic because in one guy, the machine didn't work quite right. And, and in another guy, you know, he, he didn't like it, he took it off. And so the data that we had to go on to decide if we were gonna actually like really give this experiment a try was, was very slim. And I said, you know, there's nothing here. And then finally, literally about three weeks before it had to be turned into Sundance, I was on vacation and I called James and I said, James, you know what? If we don't try it, we'll never know. It's going to cost you a lot of money if it doesn't work, you know, to get the film crew together. But if you're willing, let's give it a try. And so we did the experiment and I mm -hmm. went in very skeptical. And when I saw the results, that the Ridges scan, this very simple device, was able to measure a three mm -hmm. to five fold difference. Ugh. It blew my mind. It literally, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. Now, as I said in the movie, not a placebo controlled trial right? Just an experiment, just an experiment for the film. Mm -hmm. But the signal is so unmistakable that it's hard to imagine there isn't really something to it. And to that end, yeah. uh, we, yeah. we are launching a large clinical trial in New York out of Maimonides with Dr. Robert Osfeld and looking at uh, I think oh, 75, nice. 75 subjects. And we're going to look at the single meal effect as well as a 24-hour thereafter meal effect. And we'll get some real science behind it and we'll, and we'll get some real numbers. Oh, how That's wonderful. That's I cannot amazing. wait. Yeah, I yeah. cannot wait for the results. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. You talk about the effect of you know specific compounds in, in the movie and in, in, in a lot of the other talks that I've, I've listened to. You talk about nitrous oxide nitrous oxide production and, and vascular health. Do you, do you want to kind of give a little bit of an idea because it's such a fascinating topic? Yeah, so nitric oxide has been very thoroughly studied and in urology as well as in other fields. And its mechanism of action has been worked out fairly well. So nitric oxide is a gas that lasts only moments in the body. And it is released in the penis from nerve terminals as well as from enzymes within the wall of the endothelial lining of the blood vessels. And the nitric oxide then causes the smooth muscle to relax by causing calcium ions to exit out of the smooth muscle cell or be sequestered within the endoplasmic reticulum, thereby lowering the amount of ionized calcium within the cytoplasm of the smooth muscle cell of the vessel, allowing it to relax and expand. And when that cell relaxes and expands, the whole blood vessel or the vascular space relaxes and expands and allows more blood to flow through it. So that's the mechanism of action of nitric oxide when it comes to blood flow and vascular dilation in the penis, not only in the arteries of the penis, but in the vascular spongy tissue that fills up the erectile chambers of the penis, which is kind of like this micro sponge. And, and every little surface of that sponge is a dual layer of vascular endothelium and smooth muscle. So nitric oxide is synthesized by our cells. And uh, young men make plenty of their own nitric oxide in nitric oxide synthase. And the nitric oxide synthase can be found in nerves, it can be found in endothelium, it can be found in smooth muscle. But once we get to about age 30, our endogenous production of nitric oxide starts to fall off. And that's when the very earliest signs of vascular aging can be detected. But we can supplement our nitric oxide from exogenous sources, from what we eat. And plants provide far more precursors of nitric oxide than animals across the board. But some plants are very rich in nitric oxide. Beets is one of them and green leafy vegetables and cruciferous vegetables. Now, these plants don't have nitric oxide because as I said, that's a gas. They have nitrate. Nitric oxide is NO. Nitrate is NO3. And the process of getting NO3 from a piece of broccoli to NO in your penis 
is a very interesting and complex sort of pathway, but it does involve and require chewing that piece of broccoli. Chewing is actually an important part of the whole process. And the reason that is, is that when we chew, we excrete saliva. It turns out that nitrate, which is in the vegetables, once we eat those vegetables, gets hyper-concentrated in our saliva. Some of it gets excreted out in our urine. Some of it does ultimately get digested into our blood and converted to nitric oxide itself in the hemoglobin and myoglobin molecules. But a lot of that nitrate that we eat gets reconcentrated in our saliva. And the thing is, none of that nitrate can actually be converted and absorbed by our body, except for the fact that there's these special bacteria in the base of our tongue that convert the nitrate, NO3, to nitrite, NO2. And so when we chew and we secrete saliva that's rich with nitrate, those nitrate molecules then hit the bacteria in the back of our tongue, and then the whole process of conversion gets underway. So very fascinating, wow. all, the, all the mechanisms that are involved, including our biome. So it's not a good idea to, yeah. to gargle with Listerine or, or bactericidal mouthwashes because you want some of those bacteria there at the base of the tongue where they can do their thing. And it's important to chew. And so all these things that uh, grandma told us, eat your vegetables, chew your vegetables, have very interesting, complex and specific scientific underpinnings. Absolutely. And, so and including satiation. I mean, the, one of the most powerful satiating functions is, or processes is chewing. When you chew, it actually turns on the satiation centers of the brain and you feel satiated, so you don't eat as much. So chewing helps in that as well. Interesting. No, this is, um, I think it's critical for people to realize that simple thing like broccoli is not so simple. It, going back to the same, what do we call it? One name uh, products. Today we had a session, we, had, we were doing one of the largest studies in the country right now on brain health and nutrition. So we have these large groups every other day right. where we do teaching and maintaining about um, the studies about 1700 people. And choose uh, one ingredient foods. Choose one ingredient foods. Yeah. And in that you'll find a lot of the products and even, even in, in the absence of vitamins. In fact, you get your vitamins much better in, uh, from food. Any other foods that you think, although we're not reductionist, we hate that, you know, as much as blueberries are great for the brain and, you know, so on and so forth, it's food in general. But is there anything else that you would ask people to kind of focus on to help with their penile vasculature? Sure. Um, and to your point, you know, patients will ask me these questions like, okay, which vegetables should I eat? Right. And I say, eat as many different kinds and as many different colors as you can. You know, the reductionists fall into a trap of thinking they know what the good stuff is inside a particular fruit or vegetable. And I like to tell my patients, the reason that broccoli is good for you is because it has a lot of broccoli in it. <laughs> because, yeah, there are thousands yeah, of molecules in any given fruit or vegetable, and we've only characterized a few of them. And to think that we know what the good stuff yeah, is, yeah. is a real pitfall. But having said that, yes, studies have been done with different fruits and vegetables. I still stand by the fact that you should just eat a whole bunch of different ones, unless you know, you're know you allergic to Absolutely. one or, or you're sensitive to one. But some good studies that have focused on particular foods are, uh, for example, pistachios. So uh, it turns out a cupful of pistachios a day has scientifically been shown to improve erectile dysfunction in men with erectile dysfunction in a large study out of Turkey where they are known for their pistachios. Fruits have been studied. And it turns out that in a, a large study in Iran, diabetic men who ate one or more servings of fruit a day had one third the incidence of erectile dysfunction than diabetic men who ate one serving of fruit a week. When you look at fruits themselves, a large study looked at the intake of berries and cherries and currants and citrus, uh, which all have uh, flavones and flavonones known to be good for vascular health. And they looked at the incidence of erectile dysfunction in these men. And as the number of servings of, of these fruits the men ate increased, their chances of having erectile dysfunction decreased. And when you sort it out for the types of of fruits and berries they were eating, the one that had the most impact was indeed blueberries. 
Amazing. Mm-hmm. See, uh, again, with pistachios, it's good for the brain, for especially for sleep, supposedly. Interesting. And, and uh, blueberries, fantastic for the brain. It's the same functions. It's the same, same processes. We agree. Uh, with regards to uh, nutrition, we were talking about uh, you know the synergy of food in general, and we like the idea. You know, the vitamin studies show that when when vitamins are taken in food form because they work in synergy, and many many of those synergies we we have no idea as of yet how they work together. Uh, they are much more effective than when we take them in pill form. And in fact, paradoxical response with vitamin E and and prostate cancer, I believe, one of the studies. Right, and selenium that. too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, besides nutrition, a couple of other areas, I'm sure all of these affect every organ, but we look at, we have this selfish acronym we've created, NEURO, N-E-U-R-O. Exercise is profoundly beneficial for the brain, not just because of the blood flow to the brain, but because of BDNF and and, and hormonal control and all of this stuff. Do you have any evidence as far as exercise itself, by itself, significantly affecting erectile dysfunction and erectile function. Yes, indeed. It has been shown scientifically that as men exercise more, their rate of erectile dysfunction decreases and it's proportionate. So men who exercise a little bit have a lot more erectile dysfunction and men who exercise very vigorously have the least erectile dysfunction and you can dial it up and dial it down. It's also been shown that erectile dysfunction can be improved with exercise, even if you have other conditions. So a study demonstrated that men with hypertension who exercise were able to reverse erectile dysfunction. Also, it's been shown that obesity increases the likelihood of having erectile dysfunction and losing weight or getting lean decreases. And of course, a big part of getting lean is exercise. Diet is very important as well, but exercise has been scientifically shown to reduce the chance of getting erectile dysfunction, reverse erectile dysfunction, and there are a couple of different mechanisms at play here. For one, the shearing effect of the blood against the vascular endothelium of the blood vessels triggers the release of nitric oxide, which Mm -hmm. of course improves blood flow to the penis as well as the rest of the vasculature. It also triggers the release of other factors, just as you pointed out in the uh, exercise studies in the brain. These other factors, uh, in many cases, act as antioxidants and neutralize toxic molecules that would otherwise impair the circulation and impair uh, erectile function, therefore. And of course, there's other benefits on the brain itself. And the brain is important to erectile function because a lot of what happens with erections outside of the blood vessel aspect is neurological. And much of that begins in the brain and then signals are sent down the spine, but you have to have a healthy, happy brain for a lot of that to work. And so exercise is profoundly important for sexual health as well. That's amazing. I I remember the first time I learned about uh, the autonomic system, that one thing that stands out, which tells you where my mind was at the time, was parasymp- the way I remembered parasympathetic system was point and shoot. I was like, what is point and shoot? <laughs> then I realized what they were talking about. It's about the penis and yeah, ejaculation. Uh, yeah, so it is definitely. We've read that about 20% of erectile dysfunction can be attributed to psychological and neurological causes. Is that the right uh, number or is it more or less? So it's really age dependent. I would say the vast majority of men with erectile dysfunction who are in their 20s or 30s are experiencing a behavioral cause, a psychological cause. Uh, Whereas the vast majority of men in their 50s and above are likely gonna have some behavioral component because how can you not? But the most profound, the most influential component is going to be the physical. And that's typically gonna be vascular, but it could be neurological too. But neurological itself is gonna be a small percentage because fortunately, neurological diseases and neurological injuries reflect a very small percentage of the total population. But spinal cord injury, demyelination diseases, or neuropathies, neuropathies, local nerve injuries from prostate surgery, or diabetic neuropathies, which are very common, and diabetic nerve deterioration, which is very common. Yes, these all play a role, but in the diabetic, 
Although the neurological deterioration plays a role in erectile dysfunction, that diabetic is also suffering from vascular deterioration as well. Yeah. So for them, it's a double hit. And diabetics are amongst the hardest population to treat with erectile dysfunction. They have amongst the highest failure rates to the pills like Viagra and Cialis. But as we all know, diabetes can be reversed with diet and medication yeah. as well in some cases. But, but diet plays a very profound role with diabetes and gradual reversal of the damage done. Especially, and we've seen the diabetic neuropathies and diabetic uh, patients who develop erectile dysfunction. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if they address the nutritional component, that gives them the best chance of potentially reversing the damage. That's, that's the critical factor to know. That's right. When absolutely. you look at long-term studies of men with diabetes done out to 10 years, uh, men who adhere to a plant-based diet have a, a lesser decline in their erectile function over the years. We know that as the years go by, we're not immortal. At some point, we have some wear and tear. We have some deterioration, but that can be slowed down significantly with diet, and that has been scientifically proven. Absolutely. Um, uh, so one of the dilemmas we have, I, I said it at the beginning and I'll say it again, um, you know, cognitive decline is what we are worried about, not so much Alzheimer's. We really truly, and now we said this 10 years ago and was controversial. Now it's not even Alzheimer's Association International Conference believes that Alzheimer's, forget about the rest of the dementias, vascular dementia, obviously, but even Alzheimer's can be prevented and their numbers are around 60%, 70%. We're saying as much of 90% of Alzheimer's with really significant lifestyle change can be reversed or prevented, not so much not Reverse, but yeah, prevent it. Prevent it. Uh, I know that some people are making all kinds of outlandish, uh, um, you know, claims that they can reverse Alzheimer's, but prevent it. But still, we're worried about cognitive decline that starts in the 30s and 40s because of lifestyle that can be significantly affected with minor changes in nutrition. I mean, Aisha's study, the California teacher study, 133,000 people showed that as you know, just minor nutritional changes reduces stroke rate and vascular disease of the brain by 44%, 133,000, not a small study. Right. So uh, convincing people of that is difficult, but convincing them that they're having erectile dysfunction, which is actually a very close mirror of the vasculature of the brain is not. So in a way, you're, we're, the two of us will be working together or the three of us around this concept of connecting the different body parts and their relationship and showing a different path than medicine. Well, it sounds to me like CD is the new ED. <laughs> Cognitive class, <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah the, the only difference is you can see ED faster than you can see CD. Although, you know, you don't necessarily have to wait for significant manifestations of, of cognitive impairment, even the brain fog that they they usually refer to in the clinic. That's the beginning of, you know, problems with processing information and learning and attention and focus. So, yeah, I told my wife when I couldn't find my keys that, you know, this has never really happened to me before. I'm probably just really tired. Maybe I could find my keys later. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. The same excuse I'm use works. That. <laughs> it works. One, so we've talked about so much synergy between our two fields, but there is a little bit of point of dissonance. Uh, so some of the medications that you guys prescribe for prostate are actually not beneficial for the brain. And we, we, we actually face that because a lot of them are anti-cholinesterase, uh, anti-cholinergic medications that are good for you know, prostate, but not for the brain. Have you, uh, that the relationship yes, actually comes up quite often. Yes, we're quite sensitive to that. And to that end, you know, these, these anticholinergic medications are used to counteract overactive bladder. And a new drug, a relatively new drug called Merbetric, provides that overactive bladder uh, remedy without the anticholinergic side effects. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of insurances that don't cover it. And so we are relegated to have to rely on anticholinergics proper for, for many of our patients just due to insurance reasons. But medication such as Merbetric helps decrease that anticholinergic burden on our patients. Also, other procedural interventions such as tibial nerve stimulation has a beneficial effect on bladder overactivity without any pharmacological side effects. And sacral nerve implants with sacral nerve stimulation 
can provide benefit in, in more severe cases. Uh, also, the injection of Botox in the bladder can counteract uh, spastic bladder. And so all of these other interventions are allowing us to prescribe less and less of these anticholinergics, which we all recognize as having a uh, cognitive burden. Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful that it we have, wonderful. you know, different modalities of treatment now that, you know, treats the specific organ without its systemic side effects. Yes. That's wonderful. I also wanted to talk to you about some of the psychological aspects of uh, erectile dysfunction, and especially we're going through a pretty stressful time. You know, the, uh, we see the effect of stress and anxiety on, on brain and how it affects memory, processing, cognition in general. Does that have an effect on erectile dysfunction and, um, you know, function? Absolutely. And the underlying factor is adrenaline. So adrenaline is the molecule that our body releases when we are facing a stressful situation that might be threatening to us, physically threatening to us. And adrenaline causes blood to shunt away from our extremities and move to our vital organs, uh, our liver, our heart, our lungs, our brain. And it does that by constricting the blood vessels in our fingers and toes and dilating open the blood vessels in our aorta and, and, our, and the, the vessels to our main organs. And the reason it does that is because in a worst case scenario, if, if we get attacked and we lose an arm, uh, we're not going to bleed to death if the blood is, is being shunted into our core. Mm -hmm. The problem is, if you go back over the, the millennia of, of human existence, our main stressors were external environmental stressors, right? It yep. was a harsh environment. It was predators. That is no longer the case. We absolutely control our external environment. And now our main stressors are internal. They're psychological. But our bodies can't really tell the difference. And when there is some sort of a stress, it triggers an adrenaline release, whether it's because there's a bear about to attack us or because we had an off night the other day, couldn't get an erection, and now we're wondering, geez, I wonder if I'm gonna have trouble getting an erection like I did that other night. And that thought alone, just that simple thought, causes the body to release enough adrenaline to constrict the blood vessels to the fingers, toes, and penis, and make it difficult to get an erection the next time. And now, the next time you go to have sex, you say, gosh, I wonder if I'm gonna have trouble like I did those last two times. And all of a sudden it becomes a vicious loop where adrenaline keeps getting released in the context of sex. Now, that's just a very classic, simple example of how stress can cause erectile dysfunction. Think of the incredible stress that we're facing with the pandemic, uh, the loss, mm -hmm of life, loss of loved ones, the loss of income, the uncertainty of the future. All of these stressors will trigger adrenaline release in us and make it more difficult to perform sexually, even though there's no need to shunt blood away from your penis to deal with the stress of uh, employment. But that's what our body does. And so stress causes erectile dysfunction in a very discreet physiological way, and that's through the release of adrenaline. Amazing. And uh, it's so interesting to hear you say it from a urological perspective, the same thing happens in the brain, the increased adrenaline, the increased cortisol actually damages the parts of the brain that are responsible for consolidation of memory. So forget about remembering all you're doing is basically stealing away blood and pure oxygen and nutrients from the brain and other parts of the body and sending it off to the muscles. Our biology was never made for constant chronic stress. It was made for just those acute bouts of stress where you wanted to run away from the tiger. Yeah, and, and right. forget about, and it's really bad if you forget where your penis is. <laughs> then it's, you're in bad shape. <laughs> yeah. That's some serious well, stress, with, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so with that, uh, it's wonderful talking to you, it really is. We think it's an incredibly important topic we think that the canary in the in the mine is a perfect analogy. If men are experiencing erectile dysfunction or a, even a semblance or a degree thereof, that's a profound indicator of vascular disease in the brain. And that's when you can start doing things that not only affect the penis, but the entire body and you know your brain, which is the most vascular organ. So the two are connected, the two concepts are connected. And I want people to recognize that those little signals 
and I don't mean little in a pejorative sense. I mean, you know, in a sense that those signals are, are important indicators of general health. Pick up on those signals. It's not always psychological. It could be psychological, but it is definitely a signal to warrant, to tell you that start thinking about, you know, other parts of the brain, such as heart, the brain uh, itself, the body. Uh, and that starts in your 30s and 40s. But you know, the 30 year olds think they're immortal. But at least in 40 years of age and 50, you start you should start thinking about changing lifestyle yeah. because it has an amazing effect, short-term and long-term. Yeah, we, we start investing in our 401k in our 20s and 30s. We need to start investing in our biological 401k in our 20s and 30s as well. I love Beautifully that. Beautifully stated. I love that. Yes. That's a great way to end this fabulous conversation. We hope to speak with you again soon, and maybe we can even do research together to look at the effect of lifestyle on our organs of interest. Yes, yeah. and, and the, your book, the, everybody who's listening to this yes. should get your book. It's an important book. The Although, Penis Diet. Yes, The Penis, no, exactly. No, it's called The Penis Book. <laughs> but there the is penis, a oh, the penis there, book. There is a food <laughs> chapter <laughs> in it. There is a yes, food chapter. That's right. The penis book. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Uh, you won't miss it. There's a unique picture on the cover. It's a, no, you can't miss that. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I'll so tell in you any case. a funny little story. There's an eggplant on yes. the cover. And yes. uh, <laughs> one right. of my patients found it in the local library in San Clemente, filed in the cooking section. What? <laughs> True story. <laughs> some some people are going to be quite surprised when they take it. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. they're going to go hilarious. hungry, but they might have a good night. Uh, uh. In any case, I'm going on a tangent. Something's uh, going to get eaten. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for your work. Yeah, you do amazing work, and and both as far as the science, the clinical work, and then spreading the message in a way where people can understand it. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for all the great work you guys are doing too, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Absolutely, yes. we'll see you soon then. Okay, bye bye. <laughs>